theyeshiva.net. Honestly, this has been a very difficult week for me to teach all of my classes because the Jewish people are reeling from shock, devastation, pain, horror, from the tragedy last Friday morning, Thursday after midnight in Miran al I know usually our Tuesday morning class focuses on the Parsha of the week or the holiday that's coming up or the Pirkei or a similar theme. But today, with your permission, I want to share a few words about the Miran tragedy and then open up the floor also to some dialogue and questions or I don't want to say questions and answers, but questions and conversation and discussion with all of you who are gracing us here today with your presence. They once asked Elie Wiesel, Professor Eliezer Wiesel, was a survivor of Auschwitz and Buchenwald, where he lost much of his family. He was a Nobel uh, Prize a laureate, winner. And somebody once asked him, he said, Professor Wiesel, is there a tradition of silence in Judaism? Because, you know, you have the Far Eastern religions, silence is a major virtue. Some people are silent for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years. But in Jewish culture and Jewish communities, you know, meret, 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 we don't stop talking and talking and schmoozing and hakta Even the holiest day of the year, Yom Kippur, you know, you would expect complete silence, but no. There's speeches and sermons and conversations. So he says, Professor Wiesel, is there a tradition of silence in Judaism? And Eli Wiesel responded and he said, yes, there is a tradition of silence in Judaism, but we don't talk about it. I think, though, there is one place where we do talk about it. It's in the book of Ayikra, Leviticus, portion of Shmini, read a few weeks ago. It happens on the first day of the month of Nisan, the day that the Mishkan, the sanctuary, is inaugurated. The joy is extraordinary. There is ecstasy and passion and such jubilation and celebration as the Shekhinah's divine presence comes back and restores its presence among God's people. A fire comes out from Hashem, it consumes the offerings that they offered on that eighth day, the first month of Nisan, and the whole nation is ecstatic, engaged in dancing and celebration, bowing down and prostrating themselves. Our sages, the Chachamim, say that the joy of that day is compared to the joy of the creation of heaven and earth. And in the midst of all that joy, in the very location that was the cause for that celebration and joy, the Mishkan, which was just erected for the first time, just put up, 
in that very space that generated all this ecstasy and excitement, on that very day, when this entire joy was created, the day of the Chanukahs, the dedication of the Mishnah, the very people who were responsible for this revolutionary moment, the Koyanim, the two sons of Aaron, Nadav and Avil, the Koyanim, the priests who offered these offerings and were designated and chosen to perform the service in this sacred oasis, in this transcendent space on earth called the Mishnah. And the Torah describes, Fire emerges from God and consumes the two children of Aaron, Nadav, and Avil, and they die in the presence of God. On that great day of joy, and in that great space of joy, the high priest, the Kain Gadol, Aaron, loses two of his children, Nadav and Avio. And I could not help but think of this scene in the Torah when reflecting upon what happened this past Thursday morning, this past Thursday night, after midnight, Friday morning, Lagba Eimer, Tovshin Pe'alaf, the 18th of the year, 5781, one of the happy days, one of the greatest, happiest days in the Jewish calendar, known as Yom Sim Chasay, the day of joy of Rabban Shimon Bar Yechai, one of the greatest sages and teachers and leaders of Jewish history, who asked that on his Yom Ha'ilula, he called the day of the anniversary of his passing Yom Ha'ilula like a wedding day. Ilula means a wedding in Aramaic. And during this great celebration, in the very space, in the holy resting place of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yechai, 45 precious sacred souls were crushed to death our best and our finest and our holiest children, Bachram, young fathers who now leave complete families devastated, widows and children, siblings and parents and grandparents and close friends and uncles and aunts. Am Lagbaimer in Miran. Some of us, like myself, might were watching live one o'clock, it was I think one o'clock in the morning in Israel, watching live the one of those last torches being lit by the Rebbe of Taldus Aaron. I'm sure some of you saw it. And the singing and the dancing and the unity and the ecstasy and, and the fires were burning, not just the physical fires, but the, the fires in the hearts were burning as they were singing Animamin and uh, and Amr Abakiva, and Bar Yoichoi, and, and all of the other beautiful songs, uh, shoulder and shoulder Jews from different communities and demographics united. And then a few minutes later, this surreal, unfathomable tragedy that many of us, most of us still can't fathom. It seems so unreal. Just in a few minutes. We all have this lump, lump in our throats, in our heaviness, in our stomachs this week. What happens after the death of Nadavanaviyu? What happens? What happens right when these two boys, these two young men, are taken? Moshe, their uncle, the greatest prophet who ever lived, the leader of the Jewish people, speaks to his brother. He speaks to his brother, 
the bereaved father who just lost his children. He tries to console him. And he tells him beautiful words. He says, this is what God meant when he told me once. I will become sanctified through those who are closest to me. And Rashi writes that Moshe was telling Aaron, I knew that the new sanctuary will be sanctified with those who are friends of God. But I thought it would be either you or mine. I thought it would be you or me. Now I see that none of an aviyu, your children, are greater both than you and I. It was sanctified through them. And I assume we could say that Moshe was trying to, to give some meaning, some explanation, conveying some sense of, of purpose to this devastating tragedy. But the father's response is different. What happens next? The Torah gives us two words to convey the response, the reaction of the father himself of Aaron. Vayidoim Aaron. Aaron remains silent. He doesn't say a word. What is the meaning of the silence? Why is he silent? Was this a silence of submission? Was this a silence of protest? Was this a silence because no words could capture the depth of the tragedy or no words could convey an explanation for the tragedy? And perhaps all of the above and much more that I don't know because it's silence. I want to tell you a story about this. A Jew once came to the Kloisenberger Rebbe the Kleisenberger Rebbe was an extraordinary figure. His name was Rabbi Yekusiel Yehuda Halberstam. He was already a Rebbe in pre-war Europe, before the Second World War, in Kleisenberg, the city Klausenberg, they call it, Kleisenberg, Romania. And he lost his wife and 11 children. His wife, Hannah, and 10 children were sent to Auschwitz, and immediately sent by Dr. Mengele to the gas chambers where they were gassed. The Kloisenberger Rebbe had an 11th child who actually survived the war, and he died in the DP camps. And I believe that the Kloisenberger Rebbe did not even know that he had a child who survived. So here's a man who lost everything, everything, a wife and 11 children. There's no words. He rebuilt, he remarried, he built a beautiful family. He built the famous Laniato Hospital in Netanya. He built the community of Kiryat Sanz in Netanya. He built a very large Hasidic community here in New York and in Jersey City in New Jersey. He built Mifalashas. He built educational institutions in the DP camps and in subsequent years. And he was a rabbi. He was a leader. He was a teacher. He was a master. He was a tzaddik. He passed away. Test Thomas Tavshinon Dalad. 1990, the 9th of Tom was 1994. I still remember it was a few days after the passing of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, a few days earlier on the 3rd of Tammuz. Somebody once came to the Kloisenberger Rebbe and he said, Sons Kloisenberger Rebbe, how did you do it? How did you manage to pick yourself up from the ashes and start over again? And he didn't just live a life in despair and, 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 and submission and, and anger. He, 
you know, to be a leader and a successful leader, you have to be enthusiastic, you have to be inspired. You can't lead people if you're numb and dead and lifeless. Maybe for a while, but it, it catches up to you. You know, you can't fake it for too long. He says, how did you do it? The Kloisenberger Rebbe responded and said two words. Bidomayich chayi. Bidomayich chayi. He was referring to that powerful verse in Yecheskel Ezekiel. Chapter 16, verse 6. A verse that's recited at every bris, every Jewish circumcision, and it's recited by every Jew in the Haggadah on the Seder night of Pesach. It describes the night of the Exodus and the Jewish people are compared to a fetus who has just emerged from the womb of the mother still the umbilical cord attached and very bloody and has to be cleaned up and slowly developed. He says, I passed and I saw you wallowing in your blood and I said, through your blood you shall live, through your blood you shall live. Her sages say it refers to the blood of the carbon Pesach, the Pesach offering that they offered that night and it also refers to the blood of the bris because they circumcised themselves last night. And this man hearing this response understood the Kloisenberger Rebbe to mean that through our blood we came to life, which means we never allowed our blood to become a reason for death. We did not allow Jewish bloodshed to become a reason for us to give up and surrender to the spear and resign in fear. Whenever Jewish blood was spilled for Jews, it meant that it must serve as a catalyst and a springboard for rejuvenation and for renaissance and for a deeper commitment to life and to love and to rebuilding. And the man was quite startled by these words. But through your blood, your blood is a calling to live and love. So the Kloisenberger Rebbe turns to him and says, you understood my response? He said, yeah, I understood. You're telling me that the, that the pain and the, the, the unfathomable death toll and the, the surreal tragedy and travesty of the Holocaust inspired you and triggered within you a, a desire to, to recreate life with, with a vengeance, with a passion, with, with such gusto and oomph. Kleisenberger Rebbe said, no, you misunderstood me. I meant something else. He said something very profound. He said, Bidamayich means with your blood. But Bidamayich also has another etymology. You remember that story when Aaron lost his children and his response was, Vayidim. He was quiet. He was silent. Vayidim. Bidamayich You ask me how I move on? I live through silence. Bidamayich Through your silence you should live. There's a lot of silence. It's the silence that allows me to live. I want to try. I know, and I know, and I know this is a, a, a paradox to articulate silence, but I want to try with, with trepidation and with awe and with humility to say a few words about what I think the Kloisenberger Rebbe might have meant. Maybe I'm wrong, and I ask forgiveness in advance, but I think this is what he might have meant. The Jewish people always understood 
that some experiences in life, I simply cannot wrap my brain around them. They are too big. They are too mysterious. They are too insane to try to fit them in into my brain. And when I try to force them into my box, and when I try to force my brain to wrap itself around these experiences, experiences and make sense out of them, all I do is I either give myself terrible migraine headaches from trying to achieve the impossible, or I get even more angry and desperate trying futilely and engaged in an attempt that is simply impossible because these are experiences that overwhelm me. I cannot fit them into my structures. I cannot fit them, fit, fit them into my logical constructs. Silence is not a statement that I don't care. I'm spaced out. I'm detached. I don't feel anymore. Silence is a result of the fact that I respect the magnitude of the mystery. I don't feel I could or I need to make sense of it. I am not going to try to force logic and explanations and rationalizations and philosophical justifications and all types of insight just to make myself feel comfortable with the experience. I could gaze at something that is shocking and overwhelming and startling and breaks my, and cons- and destroys my system. It, 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 my computer crashes. It doesn't fit into my brain's computer. I could be present and I could look at it without the need to force it into my mathematical equations, even if I'm an extremely bright and sophisticated fellow in my mind. But I'm not going to make myself feel comfortable by delusional ideas and justifications to something that is essentially completely transcendent. I realize that I'm, the, I'm in the presence of something that is just beyond me. And it has to remain beyond me. That's why I'm silent. I am vulnerable in the presence of a story that is larger than me. It began thousands of years before me. It continues thousands of years after me. It completely transcends my finite tools, limits, faculties, perspectives. Silence is the ability to be fully present in life, to be able to grieve without amputating any emotions, without denying any emotions, and to be able to dance, to be able to celebrate and to be able to cry and sob to be able to be fully present with myself without running away, not because I don't feel, but because I can appreciate the fact that some things are just beyond me, like the sphera that was counted, that is counted on the night of Lagbaimer, Hoid Shabahoid, Hoid is surrender, submission, and the surrender itself. comes from Hoyt, from surrender. It's the art of silence. It's knowing that so much of life is a mystery. And there's no way my finite brain can grasp it. Yes, I know that I'm not a random mutation. I know that life is not random. I know that there are no mistakes. I know that every single one of us was conceived in love. And I know that love 
is at the core of the universe because it's the consciousness that vibrates through every living organism in our universe. And I know that there is meaning in every moment and every experience. But I still don't understand. And I can't emotionally and intellectually make peace with everything. I am silent in the presence of not of such mystery. And we also know that it's not our job to explain. Our job is not to explain pain. Our job is ultimately to eliminate pain, not to make it logical. So the Kloisenberger Rebbe tells this Jew, you know how I went on, through your silence, you could continue to live and prosper and love and grow. And Aaron was quiet, he was silent. The events like Bahamim, Iran, are certainly above my pay grade, but I think above all of our pay grades to understand, to even begin to comprehend. Nor should we feel forced and compelled that we have to rationalize and explain. We could be comfortable in silence. I spoke to two of the fathers who lost children. I went to visit them. One father, living in Borough Park, told me, he said his son came home for Pesach. He was learning in the Mir Yeshiva in Yerushalayim. And he wanted to go back after Pesach, but his father said, you're coming back anyway soon because his sister's getting married. And he himself, he himself was engaged to get married after Sukkot. But your sister's getting married before that, so just stay. You'll have a chavrusa, you'll learn here. The boy insisted. He says, Tati, no, you know, this is my last semester. I'm not married yet. I'm completely, I could be completely dedicated, Yoimim Valayla, day and night, to learn and strike. I just want to go back to the Mirror Shalayim and learn. His father told me, I was arguing with him. I said, You're a learner. We'll get you a good chavrusa here. You'll sit in a good base madrash and you'll learn what you're going, you're coming back a few weeks later. What's the point? He tells me my son was stubborn. He said, please let me go. Please, I want to go. I want to go learn a yeshiva in Yerushalayim. And he said, no, my son wanted. So I got him a ticket. And I take him to the airport. And we're driving to JFK airport for his flight to Yerushalayim, to Israel, to Tel Aviv after Pesach. And he turns to me and he says, Tati, the real reason I wanted to go was I wanted to be Lagba Oimer by Rav Shimon Bayechai. That's the real reason. That's why I wanted to go. I could have learned here, but Lagba Oimer, I wanted to be in Miran. The father tells me, he says, Rabbi, why, why? I told my son, if you would have told this to me in the beginning, I would have never let you go. You go to Miran another time. I would have never let you go. I've never bought the ticket. But he says, now we're already on the way to the airport. He has a ticket. I'm going to cancel it. He went. His name was Pinchas Menachem, named after the Ger Rebbe, the Pnei Menachem. He was one of the 45 souls who was crushed to death that night, engaged to be married. Another father, just yesterday, went to visit him, and he told me at the Shiva, his son, his name is Dovi, 
very special boy, 21 years old, was also learning in the mirror. And he heard himself in Miron. He heard himself. He sprained his foot. You know, there's a lot of slopes there and steps there. And, you know, he won descent and he, he slipped or he fell. He hurt his foot. He couldn't walk. And a friend, another friend from the mirror, Yossi Cohen, was also killed. Was helping him. He was helping him walk. They called Hatzala. And Hatzala brought a stretcher and they took him away. They took Dovi Steinmetz away. And he messaged his father living in Montreal, Tzalayin Gayarin. They sprained his foot, Hatzala took him away. And then a few minutes later, he tells his father, you know, I'm feeling good, I'm going right back. No, you hurt your foot, go relax. I'm going right back. And he goes back, he was part of the lighting of the torch with Tal Siren. he was pouring kerosene or oil, you could see it in the videos. A few minutes later, his soul was also taken together with his friend from the Mary Cohen from Cleveland. Father tells me these souls were plucked. I told one of them, I told another father, it says in Shehashirim, my beloved one went down to his garden, to pluck roses, says the Medrash, such beautiful kids, such beautiful bachim. Such amazing people, such amazing fathers, one by one. I don't know if you saw this one, but this... Among the 45 souls that were killed, there were also two families, siblings who were killed from two families. The Engelred family lost two children, two sons. And there was another family, the El-Khadad family, Breslov and also lost two boys, their father is a Breslov Chassid. Ay, his name is Rabbi Nachman. So Rabbi Nachman said, somebody sent me a clip. It's the father of the two boys. He said, I went to Miran to Rabbi with five, five sons. Three came back, three were saved. And two died. The father begins to weep and he says, all night, I was crying. I was in shock. And I kept on praying to Hashem for one thing all night. Don't take away from me my emunah. All night, that's all I asked for. Don't take away from me my, I need a lot of strength and endurance and power. Don't take away from me my faith, my emunah. I say to you, my friends, it's like students of the Balshamtiv, that's how they used to speak. These are Jews living in our times. I am in awe of them. The resilience, the amuna, the faith, the connection. He said, I don't understand, I'll never understand. But I ask God, just don't take away from me my amuna, my relationship with you. Don't take away from me my ability to be able to be present in the silence to be able to hold on to God amidst the silence, to be able to say like David HaMalach, even when I walk in the valley of the shadow of death, I don't get destroyed by evil because I, you are with me. And I thought, you know, Rashi writes, 
that because Aaron was silent, God spoke to him personally and intimately afterwards because of his silence. And somebody once asked me, what, what's the meaning of this? And if he would have not been silent, if he would have spoken, God could not communicate to him directly. So there's different interpretations. But perhaps one very powerful idea Rashi is saying is that because of Aaron's silence, he could still remain completely connected to God, even amidst these moments. Because if I try to understand, if I try to understand and fit infinity into my finite brain, I'm trying so desperately to do something that I can't do, that either I just go crazy from an attempt that's ridiculous, I, I lose my, my humanness, or ultimately I revolt in, in anger and frustration because I'm, I'm trying, I'm trying to, to, to fit the circle into the square. In infinity does not go into finiteness. I have to be comfortable with not being comfortable, comfortable so Aaron could remain completely connected to Hashem because of that silence, because of the knowledge that there's no words, no words to express the pain and no words to capture the pain and convey it in any logical ways to fight explanations, rationalizations, and justifications. You know, this father, Ebmer Nachman al-Khadad, continued, he said, 45 souls were taken. He says, the number 45 is Memhe, Ma. Ma, in Hasidic works, is known as the quality of bittel. What? It's the ability to say what? It's the humility, it's the vulnerability to say ma, ma. I don't know, the desire says chachmas, kayach ma, the ability to say what? Moshe Rabbeinu says about himself, v'nachnu ma. In Parshas B'Shalach, he says it about himself twice, and about Aaron. V'nachnu ma, kisalinu aleinu. What are we? And the father says, for me, this means that the calling today is ma. The calling is that even if I completely don't understand, I should be able to realize that I could still trust. I could still rely. I could still hold on. And the reason I hold on is not because I understand, but I understand the fact that truth really transcends my understanding. And the father said amazing words. He says, one realizes that a person has no yeshus, no real existence in this world outside of God. There's no life outside of Hashem. Every moment of life, every breath of life is divine energy. There's no, there's no yeshus, there's no, there's no I, there's no I outside of God. He says, that's what he's holding on to. Just incredible, incredible to hear these words from people. There's one more thing I think that's important to say today. I'm sure there's many more things, but there's one more thing I want to share with you. One of the songs that they sing on Magba Emer is Bar Yechai Nimshachta Ashrecha Shem and Sasa in Mechaverecha Bar Yechai Jemen Mishchas Kodesh. It's a beautiful, beautiful poem that was written by Rabbi Yisrael Avi. He was a great Kabbalist. He was the rabbi of Libya about Rabbi Shimon Ben Yechai. Really a very beautiful poem that many communities and Jews sing on Lagba around the bonfires 
And he has there a line, he says, Nasa Adam Nemar Bavurecha Bar The words Nasa Adam. In Genesis, Bereshis, God says, Let us make Adam. These words were said for you. You are that Adam that God had in mind when he said, let us make man. He was thinking about you. You're the Adam. Wow, those are powerful words. In other words, Rashbi, wasn't just a, a fine person and a great mind and a great tzaddik and a holy Jew, but he embodied the Adam. That original Adam, Nasa Adam. Why Why him? Among he was a great man. What, what what was it about him? So there's different insights, but I just want to share a thought that came to me last Friday, as you and I and so many were trying to digest the news that, by definition, cannot be digested. There's a Gemara. Interacted Yevamus, Mesachis Yevamus, Taf Samach, Amud Beis, and Samach Aleph Amud Aleph, 61b, 60b, 61a. Hoyer Reb Shimon ben Yechai Aimer. Reb Shimon ben Yechai used to say, Kivrei Oivdike Chavim Eina Metamin Ba'oyel, Atem Kruyim Adam, Ve'ein Umasa'olam Kruyim Adam. A fascinating law. Let me explain it to you. We all know there's a law that if somebody is standing under the same roof with a corpse, a human corpse, that person becomes impure. Even if the roof and the tent that covers both of them extends for a kilometer or five kilometers or five miles, and you may not even see the corpse, it's on the other side of the building or there's a long tent, and it's on the other side of the tent, and I'm on the other side, I get affected, I become impure. And not just me, the clothes that are there, and the vessels that are there, and all the people that are there. In the beginning of Parashas Chukas. Everything that's under the same roof, like the corpse, becomes tummy. Even though I didn't touch the corpse, and I didn't carry it. I didn't come into physical contact. But the fact that we're under the same roof already creates a connection. Parenthetically, somebody asked the Chsam Seifer, Reb Moshe Seifer, the chief rabbi of Prezhburg today, Bratislav, he passed away, Tovkov Tzadik, that's Tovrej, 1839, Chsam Seifer, Seifer, was then in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Somebody once asked them, you know, Chassidim, they traveled to their Rebbe for Yom Tov. They don't, there's so many thousands of people come, they don't have an opportunity to talk to him to listen to him, to discuss their lives with him, to learn Torah directly from him. Too many people. What's the point? So the Chassam Seifer said, look about, look, look, look at the laws of Tumah, the laws of impurity. I'm under the same tent with a corpse. Even if I'm a few miles away under the same tent, I become impure. He says, positivity is more powerful than negativity. Just being under the same roof, with a holy person, with a tzaddik, affects you. The holiness does something to you, it affects you. Here's the question. What about a non-Jewish corpse? If a non-Jew dies, so we know, if I touch it, I become impure. If I carry it, I become impure. But what about Thomas Oihel? Comes Rabbi Shimon ben Yechai and says, no, if a non-Jewish corpse is in a tent, dead, 
nobody becomes impure. Why? Because the Pasuk says in Chukas, Adam kiyamuz ba'ayam. You need an Adam to die. It doesn't say Ish. Or Isha, man. Or, it says Adam. You're called Adam. The nations of the world are not called Adam. What does Rabbi Shalom Bayechai mean? His own Rebbe, Rabbi Akiva. His own teacher, Rabbi Akiva, was his teacher. Rabbi Akiva once told him, it says in Yerushalayim, Rabbi Akiva once told him, it's enough that me and God know who you are. Nobody else knows who you are. It's enough that me and your creator know who you are, what your strength is. So what Akiva told his student, his student of Shem Yechai, see how a teacher speaks to a student. It's enough that me and God know who you are, Rabbi Shimon. His own Rebbe Rebbe Akiva says in Perkei chapter 3, Chaviv Adam Shaniv Adam. A person is cherished because every human being was created in God's image. As it says in Bereshis, Adam was created And then Rabbi Akiva speaks about the amazing qualities of the Jewish people. But the first thing, he speaks about Chavadam. Every person is called an Adam. Every human being, Jew and non-Jew. White and black, every ethnic group, every demographic, every race, every culture, every tribe, every religion, every human is carved in the image of God. One of the foundational ideas Judaism brought to the world. What does Reb Shimon ben Yechai mean? You are called Adam, and the other nations are not called Adam. Now this is not just a theoretical question in Talmud. This question came up in history at a very critical moment during the famous Baylis trial in 1911. Menachem Mendel Beilis, who ran a brick factory in Kiev, was accused a few days before Pesach, April 1911, in the murder of a Christian 13-year-old boy who was found dead, not far from the brick factory, with accusations that he murdered this Christian young boy in order to use his blood for Pesach. Jews couldn't believe that in the beginning of the 20th century, after the Enlightenment, which was supposed to bring sobriety and enlightenment to the Western world, people would still believe in the infamous blood libels that began in the third, in the 12th century in Norwich, England. In the dark ages, I can understand Jews poison wells and Jews use Christian blood for Passover. But in 1911? And nonetheless, oh, Mendel Bayless was thrown into prison for more than two years. And the whole Russia was alarmed and alive with accusations against the Jews trying to kill Christian children. And it spread in the whole world. Jews were very concerned. His trial began two days after Yom Kippur, 1913, Tofri Shayan It was a massive trial. It attracted the attention of Jews, not only in Russia, the whole world. Many leading rabbis got involved in the trial. They got Asker Rogsenberg from Yakatrinislav from the Ukraine to represent him as the defender. The prosecution was very, very intense. One of the questions that was, that was raised during, and they, they tried to prove that Judaism does not give dignity to the life of a Christian child. Of course you could murder him. And they dug out every conceivable statement that they could find to, so to speak, authenticate this accusation against Mendel Bayless. They even said that the killer stabbed this boy 13 times corresponding to, listen to this, to the Yudgimel Midois Harachamim. This was a Kabbalistic murder. The 13 attributes of compassion. Later they found out it wasn't 13 times. But I'm trying to show to you to the lengths that these guys went. 
One of the accusations was this Gemara, Yevama Samachalif, Reb Shemir Ben Yechai, one of the greatest sages of Jewish history, said, non-Jews are not people. Oh, if they're not people, you could kill them like you kill mice and cockroaches. It was the rabbi of Moscow, Reb Yaakov Mazel, who provided a beautiful answer. I once read that he got a standing ovation in court. And somebody, I once saw that he got the answer from Reb Meir Shapiro, the rabbi of Lublin, the founder of Dafyoimi. The truth is, the core of the idea I saw in a book called Apiria, and by Reb Shlomo Gansfried, the author of Kitzur Shulchan Aruch, who has a commentary on Chumash called Apiria, and in Parshas Tazria, he says that what he says, he says a very similar insight. And Reb Yaakov Mazer, Mazer is Mizera Aaron Akoni, was a Koyin. He lived in Moscow. By the way, a little Jewish trivia. Many of you have heard or have seen or know Jackie Mason. So Jackie Mason, his original name is not Jackie, it's not Mason. Jackie is really Yaakov, and Mason is Maza. <laughs> but then he changed his name to Jackie Mason. Just uh, next way you go, next, if next time you see Jackie Mason, you could say Shalom Aleichem, Rabbi Yaakov Maza Shlita. Rabbi Yaakov Maza was the rabbi of Moscow, and he was... He was brought to, uh, he was brought to, he was a, a gifted orator, and he was one of the defenders of Mendel Bailas. They asked him this question. Rabbi Shem ben Yechai says that Jews are called Adam. Non-Jews are not called Adam. So Adam Kiyamah's Baal only applies to Jews. And he said in Hebrew, every word, every word can be articulated in the singular and in the plural. Yochid and Rabbim. For example, how do you say a man in Hebrew? Ish. Men, anoshim. A woman, isha. Women, noshim. A land, eretz. Lands, arotsois. Every word. A day, yoim. Days, yomim. A mountain, har. Mountains, horim. An apple, tapuach. Apples, tapuchim. A table, shulchan. Table, shulchanos. I can go on and on. Kois, Koisot. Clear. One exception. Adam. How do you say many Adams? <laughs> no word. Adam is only in the singular. In other words, the term Adam can only apply to an individual, to one Adam. How do you say many Adams? There's no word for it. You have to say Anoshim, Noshim, B'nai Adam, children of Adam. You can say Bonim, sons, Bonai's daughters. So if you want to speak about a nation, could you call a nation Adam? Could you call the American people Adam? We have 300 million Americans approximately. You can't call them Adam. You can call them an Am, a nation, an Ummah, a culture, a civilization. There's words. There's a word kibbutz is a gathering, shevet, a tribe, kihila, community. Tzibur is a gathering of people. Am is a nation. Ummah is a civilization. Tarbut is a, there's, there's different terms, but not Adam. Adam is one person. You can't call 300 million Americans Adam. Doesn't work. You can't call a nation of the world Adam because a nation is not made up of one individual. It's made up of hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, or millions of people. You can't call them Adam. There's one exception, the Jewish nation. How could you call the Jewish nation Adam? Because the entire Jewish nation is one human being. And if you don't believe me, he said, look at this trial. I want to ask you a question. 
if an Italian or a French citizen or a Russian young man was accused with the murder of a Christian child, who would show up in court today? Who would feel the pain of this young man? And the answer is his father would be in court, his mother, maybe a brother, sister, maybe an uncle, an aunt, and maybe a friend, and his lawyer. Who would feel bad for this person being tried? His family and a few close friends. He said, who showed up today to the trial to Mendel Bayless? Thousands of Jews came. They never saw Mendel Bayless. They never heard his name. If not for this trial, he would have died in anonymity. Furthermore, Jews in America gathered to pray. Jews in Great Britain gathered to pray. Jews in Israel, Palestine it was called then, gathered to pray. It was under the Ottoman Empire. Jews in a, wherever Jews were, they gathered, they fasted, they prayed. They never heard of Mendel Bayless. He's a Jew living in Kiev, a father, Menachem Mendel Ben Tuvia, a father of five children, came from a Hasidic family. He himself was not Hasidic nor religious. What do they have with him? Why are they praying for him in Jerusalem? Why are thousands of Jews in court when they're not his relatives? The answer is, Atem Kruyim Adam. They're not separate people. We're like limbs of one body. A body has many limbs. A body has 80 trillion cells. But it's one organic, holistic living organism. Indivisible. Even if each limb has its own personality and its own function, its own purpose. Atem Kruyim Adam. You have the miracle of being a nation of millions. There were 18 million Jews living that. But you're one Adam, you're one person. You could be called an Adam. Furthermore, he said, look at this trial. If a Russian man or an Italian or Frenchman were being accused of murder, who would be sitting on trial? The answer, the person being accused. Who's sitting on trial today? You would think Mendel Bayless should be sitting on trial. He's not sitting on trial. The prosecution brought every text of Judaism to prove Jew, the Jewish approach to non-Jewish life, supposedly that we don't regard other lives outside of the Jewish faith. Who's sitting on trial? The Chumash, the Tanakh, the Mishnah, the Babylonian Talmud, the Jerusalem Talmud, the Midrashim, the Zoya, the Rishonim, the Acheronim, the Code of Jewish Law. Reb Shimon ben Yechoi, for heaven's sake, from Tractate Yevamas, page 61, lived almost 2,000 years ago, is brought to trial. He's sitting on the throne. Can I ask you a question? Mendel Bayless probably never knew about this Reb Shimon ben Yechoi. But somehow, on this throne, they brought every Jew who ever lived from the days of Moses... And every book of Judaism that was ever written. Does this make sense? The answer is, Atem Kruyim Adam. We're all like one person. Not just horizontally, all the Jews that are living today. Vertically. It goes up. Every Jew that ever lived, every Jew that will ever live, it's all Adam. One person. Yes, different limbs, different organs, but one Adam. That's what Yabshirim ben Yechai said. One Jew feels the pain. Every Jew feels the pain. We're literally one person from Sinai till Mashiach. It's one Adam. Even if we live in different generations and different milieus and different spaces and emotionally and conceptually in different realities, it's really one Adam. And if you'll take a look in Mechilta de Yabshirim ben Yechai, Parshish Yisroi, 
He says on the words Vigoy Kodosh, Melamit Shem Kiguf Echodu Kenefeshachas. The Jewish people are like one body and one soul. And that's why it says in Divrei Yom, and we say Shabbos Mincha Michamcha Yisrael Goy Echod Ba'aretz. And he says, Reb Shimon Ben Yechai says, Loka Echod Mehem Kula Margishin. A Jew is struck; everyone feels it. It's not Mendel Bayless. And it's not this family or that family. Of course, that family feels it like nobody else. But every Jew feels it. This is what Shimon ben Yechoi himself says. In Vayikra Rabba Parshadal, Shimon ben Yechoi has this famous metaphor, a guy sitting on a boat. You know the metaphor, right? And he drills a hole in the boat. And they tell him, what are you doing? And he says, oh, I'm just drilling a hole in my near my seat. They said, there's no such a thing. We're in one boat. You drill a hole in your seat, the water comes and takes down the entire boat. This is what Rashim Bayechai is explaining. What is he trying to tell the Jewish people? He's trying to say, you have a neighbor, you have somebody in your community or in another community or in another country. You may disagree with him or her. You may have different opinions, different perspectives, different ways of looking at the world, different schedules, different dispositions, different characteristics, a different culture, different tribe. And sometimes the disagreements may be very serious, but remember, that you're still one body and one soul. And when I harm my left arm, I'm not harming my left arm. I'm harming every part of myself. So if my left arm made a mistake and I beat it and I amputated and I cut it to pieces, I'm not taking revenge for my left arm. I'm destroying me. We're all one organism. This is what he means, Atom Kruyimad. I heard that this man got a standing ovation. Ultimately, Menachem Mendel Bayless was exonerated. He was found innocent. He ultimately left Russia. He moved to Israel. It didn't work out. He moved to New York. And he died in the 1930s. He's buried, I believe, in New York. <sighs> ah, if that's the case, maybe that's the meaning. Nasa Adam Nemer Bavurecha. Reb Shimon ben Yechai taught us what it means to be Adam. What it means to be truly connected to each other. To be an Adam means to realize that I am part of a larger infinite whole. That we are one, one forever and ever, for eternity we're one. This is what the Shema represented. The Gemara says in Shabbos, he came out of a cave after 13 years. And what's the first thing he wants to know? Maybe there's something I can help out with. And they tell him, yeah, there's a problem here. There's a piece of land that the Koyanim used to walk through. It was a nice shortcut, and now they're not sure because they say there may be somebody buried there in the Kayanim and I'll let a walk through. And Rabbi Shimon Ben Yechai dedicated time to research it and to solve the problem. When you came out of a cave 13 years, go relax a little bit. Go give a shear to the whole country, to the whole city. This is your passion, you're a teacher. He wants to know, is there something I could do to fix? And he helps Kayanim who need a shortcut. They need a shortcut. Go a longer way. It's good for exercise. The doctor tells me, walk longer. It's good for your cholesterol. They'll go a longer way. What's most shouting? But it was hard for them. That's what he does when he comes out of the cave. You came out of the cave 13 years. You learned Torah for 13 years. You revealed the deepest secrets of the Torah were revealed during those 13 years. The whole Kabbalah and the Zoyim and everything. And now, can I help another Jew? The Baal Shem Tov said, Ayid comes down 70, 80 years to do a favor to another Jew, physically and spiritually. Stories I hear from these boys from Iran. Hearts of gold, hearts of love. One of the fathers told me that the son, 
his son Friday night before, he said, you know, a lot of the young Goliath didn't come back from Pesach yet, so a lot of the boys in yeshiva don't have where to eat, Shabbos lunch, so he, a bocher, <laughs> he swipes his father's credit card, and he says, we had Shabbos, I made Shabbos for 40 boys, we fabrained till 5 o'clock in the afternoon, 6 o'clock in the afternoon, this was his last Shabbos. His father told me that I told my boy, he says, I told my boy, I said, you know, this credit, the credit card bills are getting expensive. So his, my, the father tells me, my boy tells me, Tata, Hashem no son, Hashem lokach. God gives you the money, he takes the money, he gives you the money, he takes it. If you have money, remember, God gave you the money. Let him take it. Give it to somebody else. Feed another Jew. He said, this is what my son told him last Shabbos, before last Shabbos. And he, he told, he said, I told my son, Dovi, I said, go, swipe the card. <laughs> swipe the card, feed them all. Those were the words he told his father a few days before he passed. God gave you the money, give it back to him. The same one who gave it to you the first time will give it to you the second time. It's an attitude. It's a perspective. Ah! This tragedy caught us all off guard. It demonstrated once again our oneness. People don't even know the families. Don't necessarily know the names of anybody. Everybody is reeling. That's what Rabbi Shemayachayu says. You're one Adam. It's one Adam. And it's today especially, we have disagreements. People are different. No question. Sometimes the disagreements are very deep. Usually not, but sometimes the disagreements are deep. But one could never ever allow the differences and past history, and past ills, to overshadow the fundamental eternal truth of the Jewish people. You see another Jew. You are me. I am you. When I look at you, I'm looking in the mirror. When you're looking at me, you're looking in the mirror. Sometimes I look in the mirror and I say, I don't like what I see in the mirror. But it's you... It's part of you. It's part of me. We are indivisibly one. This is the time to be able to see that. And just like with yourself, we always try and talk about self-love. See the good in yourself. See the positive in yourself. This is what I want to do with every person I meet. See the good in people. Bring out the good in people. Accentuate the good. Believe in the good. See it. Encounter it. Love it. Embrace it. I met one of the mothers who lost her child in Miran. And she tells me, Rabbi, Rabbi, why, why, what do you have to tell me? I said, I have nothing to tell you. All I want to tell you is, as ganz klal Yisrael veint metaich, that all the Jewish people are crying with you. Not the same way. Tears of a mother are of a different, different category that we can't understand. But just to know that everybody is thinking, is thinking about you, thinking about the family, thinking about your son. Klal Yisrael veint metaich. It's the truth, Atem Kriyam Adam. But it's not just the truth in times of crisis, it's the truth every moment of every day, of every hour, even when things seem calm and smooth. It's the ultimate truth of existence. Atem Kriyam Adam. Nobody can change it, not you and not me. The Yerushalmi says in Masech Nedarim, like George B. says, it's literally limbs of one body. The Zayar says, in Parshas Nasai, no, a section known as Idri Rabba. The day of the passing of Rosh Hashanah ben he revealed very deep secrets. One of the things he told his students, 
who he called Hevraya, his group. He told them, he said, that during Matan Torah, the Jews were in awe. There was tremendous awe and reverence. The Novi Chavakik says, Hashem Shamati Shimachovayoresi. God, I heard about you and I started to fear and tremble. It's of, of Chavakik, we of Shavuos. He says, yes, that's true. There's a lot of awe and a lot of reverence. But then he says, Anan, we, our group, Bachavivus, Italia Milsa. For us, the main thing is love. Even the awe is a result of the love. That's our contribution. Because it says, Ahafti eschem, Amar Hashem, God says, I love you. May Avas Hashem eschem. Vahaftas Hashem is our primary goal is love. And even the awe is an extension of the love. I'm fearful to lose that powerful love, that powerful relationship. So this is the time, my friends, of unbridled love. To be able to take the words of Rabshim Milsa. For us it's about love. To be able to see the goodness in every person. To be able to bring out the goodness in people. To be able to be ambassador. I want to be, you want to be an ambassador of love and light and hope. For each person you encounter, beginning with yourself, your spouse, your children, your loved ones, your friends, your communities, and by osmosis it spreads to all of our people and to the whole world. Finally, what, I've, what I have learned from great people who have been through difficult circumstances and in contemplating how they approached it, I always saw a common theme. They understood that they are not God. They don't take the responsibilities that belong to God upon themselves. They're actually happy that they don't have to make the decisions that God has to make every single moment, every single millisecond. They realize that they're not God. They don't understand God. They don't play God. Finite people never ever understand infinity and God is the creator of finiteness. He's the creator of logic. He's the creator of the mind. He transcends matter, time, space, time, and logic. So to compress God within logic is ludicrous and very illogical. But they do understand that they are ambassadors of God. They're not God, but they're ambassadors of God. They're representatives of God. They're rays of infinity. And as ambassadors of God, they can't always know what God is thinking. But they always ask, what is my mission at this moment? What is my mission? In lighting up the world. In lighting up my life. In lighting up my home. And bringing our world to that great moment that Rajbi always spoke about. That moment of ultimate unity among us, among the whole world. When Malaha Aretz Deya Hashem, the world will be filled with the consciousness of oneness. To be able to see the Nechama, the solace of Tzia in Yerushalayim. And we say to all the families who are grieving this week, who are mourning this week, May Hashem comfort you among all of the mourners of Tzia in Yerushalayim and the mourners of Miron. May you have all the strength, the strength that you need during this very, very difficult era for yourselves and for your loved ones. May we be worthy of your faith and your resilience. May we be worthy to be your brothers and sisters and learn from you 
and emulate you. And know that you are all in our thoughts and in our minds and in our prayers forever. And may all of us, and may all of us with our eyes see the end of a long and dark exile and see the end of thousands of years of silence, and wake up to a new dawn within our own consciousness, a dawn of oneness, a dawn of inner, inner clarity, a dawn of deep, infinite love and healing, a dawn of an inner consciousness of Gaula, recognizing our organic oneness, and that each of us is that ray of infinity in this world and experience that consciousness in the most revealed way when Hashem reveals to us Mashiach Tzedkenu and brings the Geula, may it be very speedily in our days, Bimheira, Bimheira Amen, Amen. Thank you very much. Okay, let's open the, uh, let's open the, let's open to some questions. I thank you for addressing this very painful issue, but it's still so, so difficult. I want to cry constantly. There are so many moments I just want to cry. I thought that trying to understand Hashem and asking questions helps build our relationship with Him. Or is there an exception when trying to understand things that are unfathomable and tragic? Of course... A mind is a very special gift, and we have to use our mind to its maximum. But then we recognize sometimes that there are things that as much as we try to understand, ultimately, they are really, really beyond us. And that's part of a relationship with God. It's really part of it. It's really understanding that as much as we understand, we try to understand, and there's amazing things to understand. And sometimes we can understand more than other times, and some things we can understand. But essentially, the creator of logic, the creator of the mind, does not fit into the mind and cannot be made to fit into the mind. The Kotzke Rebbe once said, he used to say things very sharply, I'm not going to serve a God that every putrid seed can grasp and wrap its brain around. In other words, if it's a God that I can wrap my brain around it, it's not the God that I'm going to serve. Next question. Why is everyone going nuts about the Miran tragedy just a few months ago? People are going nuts about the Miran tragedy because of the horrific loss of life. Just a few months ago, we couldn't get people to stay at home and no safety measures to keep other people alive. If we care so much about life, as we see now, why were people so insensitive to the corona issue? Okay, that's, you know, the whole corona issue, it's not for now. It's, of course, we always have to be sensitive to life, and our main job is to protect and secure people's lives. And I'm sure some people made mistakes, and we have to learn from the mistakes. I find it convenient, controlling, disturbing that we are a nation of intellectuals and all of a sudden God does something unfathomable 
and we are finite and we cannot understand them. What a way to shut us all down. Does accepting that we are finite also mean that we essentially forget everything we ever learned in Torah, in Kabbalah, in Musr, in Chassidus, about Hashem's relationship with us? Maybe Hashem needs new tools like parents today. We are killing ourselves to get it right. And Hashem is still resorting to a smack. Why is he smacking us? We are an unbelievable nation. I find it convenient, controlling, and disturbing. Also, why does Hashem like so much that we rise above and doing th- and do things right and have resilience? Why does he enjoy our struggle so much? This is all very disturbing. <sighs> Listen, you're asking good questions, and I don't know. I really don't understand. It's, you know, let's look for a moment at Jewish history, and you'll see that the questions of why came sometimes from the greatest of the great. Moshe Rabbeinu, the greatest man of faith, who actually knew God face to face, tells Hashem in Shmois during the horrors of the Egyptian bondage, Why have you afflicted this people? Why are you doing this to these people? Avram Avinu, the, the, the father of monotheism, the one who brought monotheism to the world, the first Jew, screams when he hears about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, which was filled with wicked people. Will the judge of the whole world not behave in a just way? Jeremiah the prophet, Yirmiyo Anavi, who was a prophet. God told him, I chose you to be a prophet before you were born. Before, before he came out to the world, he was chosen to be as a prophet. And he says, Madua Derech why do the wicked prosper and the good suffer? The whole book of Job is dedicated to this question. Read Sefer Tehillim, the book of Psalms, David, the greatest poet in the history of Israel, and our greatest king and leader, David Malach Yisrael Chai Vakaya. And he's less, Elikim al-Damilach, God, stop with the silence. How long are you going to conceal your face from me? So these are... <laughs> are great, great, great questions. And I think, ultimately, these people did not lose faith. If anything, they they, regain, they they developed a stronger faith. Why? Because, number one, they understood that the question can only exist if there is a God. If there's no God and the whole universe is random and people just get crushed to death in a stampede randomly because there's too many people, so... Don't ask any questions. People just die different ways. The cookies crumble different ways. The very question of why is based on Amuna. The real reason that people respond with such shock and horror and they feel and they know that this is not right, why is it happening, is because deep down every person, and I would say even the atheist, does not feel comfortable with innocent people dying. Why not? Why not? Because inside there's this mashu, there's this, there's this spark of divine awareness that every person has. That 
If the world was conceived in love and this purpose, why is this happening? Why would God do this? Why would he allow this? So the very question underscores the profundity of people's amuna. And therefore all these great people can ask the question, because of the intense relationship that they had with Hashem. And yet after the question they also understood that to try to fit God into our finite minds, as brilliant as we may be and as useful as our mind is and as intellectual as we are, as you say, and we are enjoined to utilize our minds to the maximum. And when Jews learn Torah for thousands of years, they've been using their mind and using their mind for, for everything in life and brought the world such progress and such blessing because of the Jewish mind. You could look at the list of Nobel Prize uh, recipients in medicine, in economics, in psychology, in literature, in peace, etc. We also realize that if creation, if the creator is real, he completely transcends it. And therefore humility and vulnerability is very much in order. And they never allowed their minds to hijack that truth that intellect is where it begins and where it ends. They also understood that our passion for life, our love for life, our dedication to save a life, and our repulsion when we see murder or cruelty or wanton death is coming from the fact that our connection to life and goodness is not just a logical idea. It transcends logic. It comes from the core, core, core of our soul and our belief that life and goodness are rooted in a place that is beyond logic. In other words, in God, of Arachamim. And therefore we realize that for logic to be able to wrap its brain around what good is and what not good is, is really ludicrous. So after their protest, they could say, Im with all this, animamin, and even stronger. I don't know if you know, but the longest letter, from my knowledge, the longest letter that the Rebbe, the Lubavitcher Rebbe ever wrote, that I know about, was to Eli Wiesel, who struggled a lot with faith, as you may know from his book, Night. It's a letter from 1965. Um, it's around a six or seven page letter which was very rare for the Rebbe to write. He would write much, he would write in brevity. And it's an incredible letter about this issue of we use the mind and nonetheless the mind has limits. I once taught the letter. You could find it on the yeshiva.net. I taught it in Yiddish, but I gave an English translation. It's around a six or seven page letter. And uh, it may be worthwhile to read. Uh, it, it was very, very powerful for me to read this. It's a letter from 65. At the end of the letter, he tries to persuade him to get married. And he says, this has been a long letter, but if as a result, you will get married and build a Jewish home, this will be my reward. Because Elie Wiesel didn't want to get married. He didn't feel that it's right to bring children into a dark world. And he writes to him. He says, I want you to get married and I hope you'll build a family. This will be the greatest revenge against Hitler. He says, and I don't care if your children grow up as Vizhnitz Chassidim, because he comes from Vizhnitz, or as Lubavitch Chassidim, or as Stam Yidin Shem Mitzvah, or just good Jews who celebrate Yiddishkeit. Whatever you choose is fine with me. And uh, indeed, I have to say, Ali Wiesel, he took it to heart, and he got married. 
and uh, his son Alicia was born the same time like me. Our fathers were good friends, and I know my parents came to his bris, and Eli Wiesel told me that he came to my bris. So that's the result of that letter. Um, um, yeah. But listen, these questions are good questions. Next question. Do you think this is the fault of the Jewish people? And whose fault is it? Okay, I say two things about this. First of all, it's always good and important to be introspective. And as the Rambam says, when tragedy strikes, every single one of us, beginning with myself, should always look into ourselves and become greater ambassadors of light in the world. There's no question. That's certainly the right thing to do. To start finding and blaming this one, that one, that one. This one does this wrong, that one does that wrong. I think the first person I should look at is me, myself, and I. And you know what? When I change inside myself, I affect change by other people. That's the rule of life, number one. Number two, you have to understand that I'm not from the people who could answer these questions. I'm not a prophet. I'm not the son of a prophet. I don't know about these things, why these things happen. What I do know is, though, that after thousands of years, our people, the Jewish people, are amazing. Look at all these kids that died. Look at their parents. Look at their families. I know some of them. Amazing, amazing people. The Jewish people generally have been through the worst of the worst and yet have emerged with such faith, with such commitment, even Jews who are not yet fully involved in Yiddishkeit, but they still want to be Jewish and want to be connected to the Jewish people in one form or fashion. So I think today it's so important, not God forbid, to badmouth the Jewish people, to realize that we are an incredible, incredible people filled with goodness and purity and holiness and light. And after so many thousands of years, it's really incomprehensible. Why didn't the Gula come? Why didn't Mashiach come yet? The Jewish people are, 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 have been tested, have been, have been through the crucible in such profound ways. The question is why? Why didn't Mashiach come yet? Why didn't the Gula come? Why do we still live in a world of, of, of darkness and, and, and tragedy and so much pain? And I don't know the answer. I don't think we know the answer to this. We really don't know the answer. We daven for the gula. We hope for the gula. We believe in the gula. We anticipate the gula. And yes, every single one of us in our own way should certainly try to come closer to our truth, to come closer to God, to come closer to each other. A mother is writing about a son that she lost. His name was Bensian. Our son passed away. You came to visit us, and you sat with us, and you spoke about a lot of these things during the Shiva. And you spoke about the Balshemtiv saying that when somebody passes away, we can respond with silence or with tears or with song. And you told us then, with silence because there's not much to say, with tears because it's sad, and with a song because the person's song was cut short, so we continue to sing their song. Yeah. That is beautiful. That is amazing. I didn't, I don't remember saying it, but I remember when your son passed away, Ben Sian, a Bacharel, and uh, I came to visit you, that I remember. And this is something they say from the Baal Shem Tov, yeah. I have so many questions. 
but not sure I want an answer. Because what would it say about us as finite beings that there is an answer we could accept? It's a very good thing, that very, very powerful observation. Do we really want answers? Maybe not. And maybe that's one of the reasons why we don't know an answer. Because our job is not to find answers. Our job is to ask the question and to do whatever we can to eliminate pain and suffering in our world. That is our job. Our job is to protest the pain. Our job is to protest the gullus. Our job is to protest the suffering that's in our world in every possible way, physically and emotionally and through prayer and through actions. In other words, if somebody gives you the most brilliant answer in the world, and it's a good answer, and you're like, oh, now I feel good. Really? That may be even worse than everything else. Very good point. Can I say something? Yeah. So, you're saying that after everything that we have been through, the feeling that you and many other people are having is, it's not about us anymore. It's really about Hashem, like you deliver. (laughs) What else do you want us to do? This is, by the way, words of a woman who is, uh, who has dedicated her life to spread Yiddishkeit in her community very successfully together with her husband and her family. And her point is, like, Jews have been doing whatever they can. They've risen from holocausts and, and autodophes and pogroms and persecutions and massacres and genocides and your own grandparents on both sides have been through uh, purgatory and back many times, either from Stalin's gulag or Hitler's camps, and have created beautiful families and and have bequeathed a lot of faith to their children, like so many else, like so many other families and so many other people who are here today with us. And it's like, what, like what else? So again? So again, 45 Jews are dead, so now we say again... Okay, we're going to come back with more resilience and more faith and do more truva. And you're like, it's God's time to act. Like, this is not about us anymore. Uh, Dina, did I re- did I paraphrase your words uh, accurately? Okay. I think that there, listen, I think there is a very, very powerful point here. Like, we don't want answers anymore, like you say. We don't want it to make sense. It doesn't make sense. It's like, how, how many more thousands of years is this supposed to happen? And every time we say, okay, we don't understand, but let's go back to do good things. And like, what's the end? And the real point here, I think, is we don't want it to make sense. It doesn't make sense. And it reaches a point that gullus becomes intolerable and pure insanity, and pure craziness. And it's so important to accentuate the amazing quality of the Jewish people. And it's like, Hashem, where are you? Ad Masai. Bring the Geula. We want Mashiach. We want Mashiach now. We don't want to wait. We want we want the Geula. And it's not just we want, like, you know, spoiled little kids who, who don't want to work. We just want, you know, we want ice cream. 
but this is it. This is your ultimate purpose. This is your ultimate desire. This is, this is the ultimate plan. And I think this is a very profound feeling today, a very genuine feeling among the Jewish people. Just this very realization is extremely powerful. It's a very powerful realization. It's not about shirking responsibility or, 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 or becoming troublemakers or, or losing our faith. God forbid. It's not about that. Jews are Jews are Jews. They're, 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 they're holy and they're pure and they're amazing and they're beautiful and they're beloved. And that's, that's, that's the ultimate truth about all the Jews. And, and you see it constantly. And if you did, even if it looks not otherwise, if you dig a little bit deeper, you'll see the endless and infinite holiness. And the ball is now really in Hashem's court. It's, 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 it's bring Mashiach, bring the Gula. The Jews are ready. Jews have proven themselves. They have proven themselves beyond the wildest expectations, I think. Uh, uh, <laughs> you know, when God chose the Jews three and a half thousand years ago, it's like, I mean, he knew he was getting a good shidduch, I think. But you know, sometimes you marry somebody and you're like, I knew I got a good, a good woman or a good man. But later you're like, I didn't realize how good. You know, and I think, I think God has the same feeling. It's like, I did well three and a half thousand years ago. He did well. He did well. But Moshe told them, Ki they're going to be there in ways that nobody even realizes that they're going to be there for you. And I think, you know, God sees the, <laughs> this is the best shit that he could have done. Such, such tenacious uh, commitment and dedication and love. And this is, I'm talking about all, all fragments, all demographics of the Jewish people. In their own way, in their own inimitable way. And so I think like God sees, he sees the Jewish people. <laughs> he sees his children. He sees what, what quality they have, what type of souls they have, what type of bodies they have, what type of lives they live and what they have produced and achieved this very day as we're speaking. I mean, it, it, it's amazing. It's, it's just incredible. Uh, you know, three and a half thousand, thirty-three hundred years ago, thirty-three, thirty-three years ago, he tells the Jews, you know, keep Shabbos, and then he disappears for like two thousand years, and we still, we still do Shabbos. <laughs> Educate your children and put on tefillin, and and we do it. He disappeared. I don't mean he disappeared, but I mean he has concealed himself. He concealed himself. So yeah, I like it. You're very right. You're very right that the last years, the last years, I and we heard from the Lubavitcher Rebbe, Jews did tshuva. His father-in-law used to say, I once heard the Rebbe said that his father-in-law said that we have to polish the buttons. The body is ready, the uniform is ready, we have to polish the buttons. And then the Rebbe said, in the late 80s, we polish the buttons too. And if you polish for too long, you start... You start ruining the buttons. You can't over-polish your buttons. We polished Jews de Tshuva, Kola Kola Kitsin, the time is here. They have done everything they had to do. Hashem has to bring the Gul, and He said there's absolutely no reason, even according to Torah, meaning the most spiritual, transcendent reason to explain according to Torah why Mashiach is not here. Yeah, He said that many, many times in the last years. The Jews have done whatever they had to do Shuvah was done, Cheshben HaNefesh was done, 
what the Baal Shem Tev, what Mashiach told the Baal Shem Tev was done. Can they do, do more? Can always do more. He used to say always do more and more and more. But, but, but an infinite amount was done. An infinite amount was done. And never mind the pain and the suffering they have been through. It wasn't just done in, in, you know, easy, comfortable, uh, quarters and circumstances. It was done amidst the greatest challenges and crises of faith and, and then of agony. We don't have to discuss it, what Jews have been through just in the last century. It's, it's, it's unfathomable and what they re, how they rebuilt and what they rebuilt. Do we have flaws? Of course we have flaws. After 2000 years in exile, you, we should have flaws. We should have flaws. It's all very powerful. And I think the Rebbe really tried to communicate this to people that the paradigm has to change in the sense of it's not any more about self-blame and self-loathing. Like we are evil and we're just horrible and we can't get it together and so forth. And the truth is, look at where it happened. It's the greatest place of unity. You know, every Jew comes there, Svardim, Ashkenazim, Yeshivisha, Hasidisha, Litvisha, what you call modern Orthodox, traditional, secular, mystical types, Yekisha types. Everybody comes there, Tamira. Everybody. They feel comfortable. Zionists, anti-Zionists, the Toldus Ironicus, all types. That's the place that unites everybody. Miron had years of half a million Jews there from all stripes and colors. You know, with respect, they dance with each other. Do we have flaws? Of course we have flaws. We've been in the Golas for 2,000 years. We shouldn't have flaws. We're struggling. People struggle. We have flaws. But as you said, Jews have proven themselves beyond, far and beyond. And I think the last years at least of his life, what I was hearing from the Rebbe, now when I process it especially was, he really tried to, you know, teach this to people. To really have that inner awareness of the infinite greatness and light of the Jewish people. And that they are ready, ready for Geula. He even said that the energy of Geula is in the world and we can already make it part of our consciousness, make it part of our life. But Hashem ultimately is the one who, you know, gotta, gotta do it, gotta finish, can finish the job. Cause as much as I do and we do and within ourselves, but Geula in the world is ultimately a divine act, not a human act. So, yeah, yeah, you could speak. Well, first of all, you have children in high school. So first of all, empathize with them. <laughs> I do. I do. No, but I think, I think what, what, what DD number two is saying, or DD number one, I don't know who was here first. Um, uh, we have Texas and we have Georgia. Huh? Okay. I think what you're saying is that not enough from a place of guilt, but the idea that it's really maybe not about tshuva. No, it's not about looking at myself or others and saying, you know, we're sinful and we have to do tshuva. Of course, every person should always do tshuva. What does tshuva mean? The truth is also what we define tshuva. Tshuva doesn't mean guilt. Tshuva means returning to your deepest place. That's what tshuva is. So just for real tshuva is not about you're bad, you're horrible, you're a sick person, and you're you're full of darkness and evil. And you better get out of it. That's a very primitive way of defining tshuva. Real tshuva. The Alter Rebbe writes that tshuva is even for the greatest tzaddikim. Tshuva means returning. Tshuva means going back to your pristine, 
infinite self. So that's, I think, important, number one, to emphasize. When we say tshuva, doesn't mean you're evil. Tshuva just means being aligned with your infinite light. At least that's the definition, I think, that is far more real. And it's certainly the definition of the Alter Rebbe, Balatanya, and Tshuva. That's number one. Number two, I think your point is the very, very powerful point. I think we have to internalize it. That even Tshuva, it's not really so much about Tshuva as it's mu- as, as, as much as it is realizing that it's up to Hashem now. And my part of my job is to really to tell Hashem it's up to you. And what it means it's up to you is, I'm in. I'm ready. So I think what Dini is saying is I have to really be able to tell myself, I'm ready. I'm not in Golos anymore. I'm not in Golos. And that's a question I have to ask myself. Am I still addicted a little bit to Golos? Not not in a place of guilt. Am I really free? Am I really open to the consciousness of infinity? That's a question inside myself. How much does anger, codependence, uh, despair, frustration, resentment, jealousy, hatred, inner hate um, still control my life? How much does Gala still control my life? That's a liberating question. That's not a uh, that's not a guilt question. Can I really come to God and say, "I'm here. I'm I'm redeemed. I'm in the presence of Gula now." You. Now you bring Gula because you're the creator and you can do what I can't do. Did I uh, paraphrase you accurately? I don't know if it was as sincere, though. That's the problem. That was very deep. That's a word. That's very powerful what you said. That's a person who works on herself. I have to say that. Both of you. Are we well, you think you think intentionally they were stepping at each other? No, that everybody wanted to get out. Nobody that. realized, and, and and they say that there were police who, by mistake, sealed off the exit because they didn't realize what's happening. There were a lot of mistakes, obviously, but right, right. What these rabbitsons, what these two distinguished rabbitsons are saying, I think, is not that. I could look at it in two ways. One way I could look at it is we're a horrible people. We still haven't got it together and we have to fix ourselves. And this is another wake up call for tshuva, which is what a lot of people say. And what, uh, Rebetzin Shusterman said is that's the conventional response that she feels is not 2021 oriented. Perhaps there's a deeper response, or maybe I should say a, a, a little bit of a, maybe a, li- a lot of a different response, and that is that Jews have done everything. We have done tshuva. We have tried. We have worked hard. Do we have flaws? Yes. God kept us in Gullahs for 2,000 years. We're affected by it. Yes. We have limitations. We have flaws. We have things to fix. We should try to fix them. Of course. But the real ultimate... Hashem made us human. Hashem made us human. He made us human. He made us vulnerable. He made life not perfect. There's a lot of suffering in the world. People have been through a lot. People are confused. There's also indoctrination in the world. You know, people... Let's face it. Most of responses of people is based on how they grew up. Based on their epigenetics. Based on their environment, nature, and nurture. You know, I don't know of so many bad people who are trying to do good. I know of a lot of broken people who are trying to get healthy. 
It's very different. There's a lot of brokenness out there. A lot, a lot of trauma out there. And not just out there, in here also. <laughs> it's not just out there. It's in here too. And, and so the real point is, so what, when does this end? So now there's more trauma. So we go to more therapy. So we become aware of more trauma. So then we become a little better. And then there's more trauma and more trauma and more tragedy and more death and more devastation. And then at one point, does God say, okay, Jews did tshuva. The Rambam says, Yisrael, Oysen, tshuva, meyad, Right? So on one hand, we know the Rambam says that every person should look at the world as a scale. And one mitzvah can tip the scale and change the whole world, which is an unbelievably powerful idea that I never know the power of one good deed. And you see Corona. You see from Corona. Could you, can you put yourself on mute, Rebetzin? We see from Corona that we, I thought what it was. One second. Again. you're not going to figure it out. Ask your six-year-old granddaughter. She'll teach you how to do it. This is not for adults. It took me six months to learn how to mute people. You have to ask the little kids, the little kindalach. When it comes to technology, we have to acknowledge ignorance. <laughs> Some of us, not all of us. So it's a very powerful idea. You see the Corona. You know, one sneeze can change a world. And that's why I always heard from the Rebbe, he would always say, you know, that a Jew should never, ever underestimate his or her power and the energy and the love that we bring into the world literally changes, changes people, changes communities, it changes the world. But the focus, the focus is, it's not anymore, we're bad, we have to do truth. We did everything. And now we turn to Hashem and we say, Ad Mosai. But the question is, how genuine is that? Am I really just doing lip service and saying, yeah, God, God, I'm not doing anything. So now I can go eat shalant, you know, and just go back to my life. And then I'm just tuning out of the situation. But the real point is say, I'm really ready. I'm really here. We are really here. And that means I'm living in Gula. I'm out of Golos. I'm done with it. And that I have to ask myself, am I done with it? Or I still have a lot of str- some strings that are attached to Golos. I still have some property that I like in Golos. Like addiction. You talk about addiction. The first step, real recovery is, I'm not an addict anymore. You know? When I go to the bar mitzvah, that wedding, I'm not going to the bar. Am I really out of Golos? Or I still have emotions that are connected. Let's face it, some parts of Golos, it's not so easy to detach from. Why? Because I'm not really ready to embrace my own gula. That's a very powerful avoid. And we need to find the tools for this and help people understand this and find ways of living with this. This is it's profound. I find it very difficult. How can we stop people placing blame on other people? They're always blaming other people. I listen to my friends who are from a less religious community, they're putting blame on the religious Jews who are pushing and packing up the place. It's very, I think it's very unfair and, and primitive. I mean, I don't know. I, I'm not part of the committee that did the research. Obviously, there was a reporter who warned a few years ago, Aryeh Ehrlich in Jerusalem, he sent out a tweet that there's a lot of dangers in Iran that they have to deal with. Of course, we have to do whatever we can physically to prevent such catastrophes and make sure that all the safety regulations are in are 
are powerfully adhered to, and to create the spaces that don't allow room for such things. For sure, there were obviously terrible mistakes made. It could be also that the police, because of corona, were focused on corona more than anything else. It could be when people were screaming, I need ear, I need ear, people are dying. They didn't take it seriously. You know, people scream, I need ear, I'm dying, I'm dying. They didn't take it seriously. Obviously, horrible mistakes were made that we all have to learn from. There's no question. It's devastating. Any way you look at it, it's devastating. I don't feel we're sticking together. There appears to be so much gossip that's still being said and communicated. How can we be like this? Why are people still gossiping about each other? I don't know. Where I, where I, where I live, maybe I'm naive. I don't see people gossiping. But maybe Achbe Meshugabesu. I don't know. You see people still gossiping about each other? I don't see it. But maybe I'm wrong. I see Jews very unified. I went yesterday to a house of somebody sitting shiva. There were maybe six, five hundred people there. From different stripes and colors. And there was such a sense of unity and, and loyalty and connection. The night before I went to another house in Borough Park sitting Shiva, it was packed with people. And again, there was such a sense of love and loyalty and unity. So I'm seeing a lot of good in people. Again, do we have to, is there room to improve? Of course, and I always want to improve. We should always improve. But here's the deal. Next time you hear somebody speaking negatively about people, educate them. They're probably traumatized. This is their way of, of, of dealing with their own pain. Help them. Help them. Feel bad for them and help them. Don't be a victim. Be a leader. Don't be part of the problem. Be part of the solution. That's my advice to you. Respectfully, Rabbi, you told us about the story where Jews always have to... You told us how Jews are one and we have to stick together. I feel today that I feel today the African Americans, no matter where they come from, are sticking together more than we are. Rabbis in our shul need to continually address this issue. I am so sad about this. I feel that we have to learn about unity much more, learn from the African Americans. Okay, listen. We all... I think being in a gaula mode means being in a unity mode. The reason I can't talk to somebody or I can't connect to somebody is because of my own fear. It's because I'm in gaulus. If I could really be in gaula, I could connect to people. So yeah, I think it's a very powerful moment to help people not feel guilty, but realize that they can liberate themselves from the all darkness that envelops us. So that we can come to God and say, I am not stuck to Golos anymore. And therefore, it's time for you <laughs> to get out of Golos and take us out of Golos. Because Hashem is also in Golos. It says in the Gemara, Rajbi, says in Megillah, where when Jews are in Golos, the Shechin is also in Golos. There's many people who say, that this happened because we should have done this, we should have done that, we should have done that. What do you say? Well, I'm telling you what I say. Okay. I am African American. I say, look at the Jews. They always stick together. 
Why can't we do the same? Now I hear you Jews saying that the African Americans stick together and we don't. But I am African American. Okay, first of all, welcome. Are you a Jewish African American or you're a non-Jewish African American? Either way, I'm very happy that you're here and welcome to the program. But whatever you are, you want to know who's right. Are the Jews united more or the African Americans united more? Well, I don't know what to say, but I'm certainly praying for a world and a day where all of us will be united. Jews with Jews, African Americans with African Americans, Jews with African Americans, and African Americans with Jews. Um, I remember when Mayor D. Dinkins, the mayor of the late mayor of New York, came to the Lubavitcher Rebbe, and uh, he said that we need to create peace between two, both sides. And the Rebbe told them it's not two sides. We are all human beings carved in the image of God. All citizens of New York living with one government under one God. It's not two sides. So that's what we need to work for. Okay. The African-American, Rebetzin, writes further. Dina, I sense your frustration. I think of the psalmist David who cried out to God when he watched the wicked succeeding. And then he understood that some things he doesn't understand. And he said in chapter 74, when I come to the temple, then I'll understand. I see your frustration just like King David. Next question. If Mashiach didn't come during the Holocaust, why do you think he's going to come now? Wow. <laughs> Listen, Mashiach did not come during the Holocaust. Mashiach did not come all the years before that. But Mashiach is one of the essential tenets of Jewish faith, and it's the ultimate realization of everything in Judaism, that God's vision for humanity is going to be realized in the real world. Mashiach is not something of the future. Mashiach is something that happens with each moment of life. Living with truth is bringing Mashiach into the world. Mashiach is just a revelation of that truth. So Mashiach is not just an event. Mashiach is the cumulative story of all of history and all of Jewish history. Why did it Mashiach come during the Holocaust? I don't know. I don't know. But every day that the Gullus continues, it becomes more and more and more apropos for Mashiach to come. It's like a woman, you know, the Talmud says that pregnancy is like exile and Mashiach is birth. So there's the due date and then there's overdue. Children could be born prematurely, but now is already overdue. It's already beyond due date. The due date, the Gemara already said, Kolo Kola Kitsen. It's now it's already overdue. I'm sorry to say, I find that we are not sticking together. I find that we need a, we need a lot, a lot of help with unity. I think we have a big problem when it comes to Jewish unity. I'll say it again. There's no question that each of us can be part of the problem or part of the solution. When you're observing a lack of unity, don't be a victim. Help people reach a deeper state of consciousness 
where unity will become much more natural and organic. That's my suggestion to you. We could sit here and say we're not united and we're fragmented, but I think, first of all, many Jews are very united. I've been around the world in the last 20 years before Corona I traveled, and I want to tell you, when I was growing up, fighting and fragmentation was much more natural. Today, people don't like it. Most people, they want unity. They want love, which is a sign of redemption. I'm sure we have a lot, there's still work to do. So be a leader in this area. Don't be a victim. Be a leader. Help people see themselves in a deeper way so they'll see other people in a deeper way. Instead of I told you, I said, told once, there was a famous line from one of the great masters. He said, one action is superior to a thousand sighs. We could sigh a thousand times. Oi, 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 oi. One action is superior to a thousand sighs. So that's what I would focus on. Next question. The more I learn, the more I read, the more I realize that there are paradoxes everywhere and in everything. This has been one of the more challenging things for me to wrap my brain around paradoxes. It's not necessarily getting easier, but I'm trying to accept it as a fact. Maybe you can talk about this a little bit. It's a very profound thing that you're saying, and it's true in physics. Quantum mechanics is about being comfortable with paradoxes. Old models of science and physics was trying to make everything fit into logic. Today we know that paradoxes are a much more accurate description of reality than logic. And the same is true when it comes to the ultimate wisdom of the world. The ultimate wisdom of the world, the wisdom of Torah, in its deepest depths, is filled with paradoxes. Not because our brains are limited, but because infinity transcends logic. You say that God has his reasons. Yes, but it's very difficult to be okay with that. That's true. That is true. And you can't judge your emotions. There are many different emotions. And you have to be able to understand whether whatever emotion comes your way is part of the journey. There was a father yesterday who told me, he said, there's an expression, Kabbalah sisurim ba'ava, accepting pain, with peacefulness, with love. He said, I accepted the pain. But to say that it's with love, he says, I have to work on that. It was unbelievably moving to hear that. You know, he says, I can accept that this is my reality. But to be able to say that I made peace with it, I can't say I made peace with it. That's the the human emotion is such that it's very, very difficult. And we have to respect that. We have to respect that that's where silence comes in. There was a Jew who once went to live in a far eastern ashram. Everybody took a vow of silence. Once a year, they could say two words. After a year, he kept the vow of silence. He was called in and asked what his two words are. And he said, food, bad. The following year, he was called in again. They asked him again, what are your two words? And he said, bed, hard. The third year, his response, his response was, room cold. The chief person over there says, 
this is not for you. Go back home. He says, why? He says, all you have been doing since you came here was complaining. It's a good one. Very good. I once heard that when a Jew passes away, the neshama goes back to its source, the neshama ascends. It doesn't remain locked in the body. It's now living in infinity. But those who remain down here grieve and mourn because we can't feel the soul. But is it true that the soul vicariously suffers because we're suffering? That's a very profound idea because the soul is still connected to its loved ones. And therefore, it's important that even as we grieve, we also allow the soul to rest in peace. Very powerful idea. I agree with you that ultimately we have nothing to say. Words are inadequate. And also remember that 45, Ma, is the numerology of Adam. Because Adam is unity, and Adam was Adam and Chava together, because Adam is always people coming together. And that's Ma, because through Bittal, we can all be one, and that's why Adam is Ma. Beautiful, beautiful addition. Next question. A lot of questions today, huh? No kidding. What about the explanation that souls come to the world for a particular mission. They're taken away when each person fulfills his or her purpose during their lifetime. Sometimes these souls depart young. Sometimes they depart in painful ways. We don't understand why they die now, why they die in this way. Is it possible that these souls came down for a specific mission, a specific time? They died in the bosom of Reb Shimon Ben Yechai, And these souls in heaven are asking us to do a little more work to make our world a better place before Mashiach. Or are these explanations just examples of trying to understand the unfathomable? Listen, I think there's certain elements that we certainly don't understand. But yes, one of the basic ideas in Judaism is every soul has a purpose and it dies, it finishes its purpose and it goes back. Why, how, when, what, where, we don't understand. There are sometimes exceptions to that, that a soul is taken before the time. There are exceptions, but very, very rare exceptions and there are also exceptions the other way around that a soul lives beyond its time. There are exceptions. We have it by Chizkiah, we have it by uh, by Chanoich, etc. But generally speaking, every soul has its purpose, it has its tafkid, it has its purpose. When it finishes, it goes back to its natural source because a soul lived before birth, it lives after death, a soul never dies. And every single soul has its exact time for the purpose for which it came down onto this world. After its death, it remains connected to its loved ones. And when we bring in light to the world, we affect positively the soul. When I do a mitzvah for a neshama, or I say a prayer, or I say kaddish, or I give charity, or I learn mishnayis, or I help out somebody, or I build something positive in this world for a soul, it's an unbelievable idea that we are so connected that our acts and words and deeds actually positively impact the soul. And they enjoy 
tremendously our joys and our celebrations, our nachas. I remember when my father died, and I had yard site for him on Sunday, I was learning Mishnayis every day, and it says that Mishnah is the same letter as like Neshama. And I can't explain it to you logically, but I felt very comforted by it. It was almost like I felt a very deep connection when I would finish learning the Mishnayis. Because it says that it really, it, it, it affects the soul. The neshama, the neshama quells from it. The neshama is elevated by it, inspired by it, infused with a new energy by it. Because the soul also misses all the things that it could accomplish on earth and now it can. So we really are in a partnership with the souls of our loved ones until Mashiach comes and the resurrection happens. But as you know, even with all of this, it's so mysterious because there's so much pain. What happened with these souls who died on Lagba Aymer? What do you think? We, I don't know what happened with the souls, but I think it's fair to say that they came to Rabbi Shimon Ben Yechai's wedding. They came to his event. He takes responsibility for them. If you came to my Simcha, right, and something happens to you, God forbid, I, 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 I bear some responsibility if I'm a normal person. It's like you came... You came to my home, you came to my space, you came to my celebration. I'm partially responsible. All these Jews came to Rav Shimon ben Yechai for his celebration. This was a celebration he asked for. I'm sure, number one, that he bears some responsibility and is certainly taking care of all these souls in the profoundest way. So I wouldn't worry about all these neshamas because they're in the bosom of Rav Shimon ben Yechai. You know, they're his souls. They died in his space, near his burial place, on his day, on his yard site. I think they're his, they're connected to him very deeply. And he's certainly taking care of each of their neshamas. I also think that it was a tzuchtarta simcha for Ashbi. I think it was something that really, it wrecked a lot of his joy on Lagboimer to see such a tragedy and so many tears among the Jewish people. I think, it was hard for all of us, and of course devastating for the families, and I think it was also devastating for Rabbi Ben Yechai, if I may say so. But I think it's he's really taking care of the souls. You ask about paradoxes. Every great truth is a paradox. If you go deep into it, you will find it to be paradoxical. Even though there are no answers, I do thank you for validating all of our frustrations. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, should we take more questions, or I think we should call it a day, no? Okay, I'll take another question. How does one get out of nihilistic behaviors and thoughts? I am dealing with nihilism. I feel very perplexed over what is good and what is bad. I know that habits and routines can be very useful to stabilize a person's life, but where do I find the reason why to go after these habits? I'm a nihilist. I don't believe in any of this. I want to be productive, but I constantly ask myself, why should I bother? It's all absurd. It's all vanity. It's all futile. Everything will be exactly as it's going to be anyway, or as God wants it to be. No matter how much I do and how hard I work, I won't change anything. If it's ought to happen, it's going to happen anyway. If this is, and if you believe in God and he runs the world, it's going to be exactly as he wants. Am I making an error? And where is my error? 
Wow. Rebbe Tzinhecht, maybe you could answer this uh, wonderful woman. Anybody? <laughs> okay, really deserves a whole class about dealing with uh, with nihilism. But I'm just going to say, you know, one little... Rabbi Jacobson, for those of us who don't understand, kindly explain nihilism. Thank you. Oh. <laughs> okay. Can I explain nihilism before I... Uh... Before I address it. So basically, nihilism is a philosophy that basically uh, experiences a inherently negative feeling towards life. Um, and it really undoes any fundamental truths that we hold dear. It basically believes that all of our values are baseless, are stupid, are, are wishful thinking, are dreams, they're ludicrous, they're insane. Life is meaningless, knowledge is impossible, nobody can really affect any change. Um, uh, many things we think exist just don't exist. Uh, I think that's one way of describing it. I mean, I'm sure there's more sophisticated ways of describing it. But uh, that's one way of describing it. You know, like this this person is saying, everything is futile and whatever I do doesn't count and there's no real values and this is not positive and this is not negative and it's all one big joke. So, it's a great question. I really feel, maybe I'm wrong, that deep down a lot of us develop these ideas because of pain and fear and cowardice because it allows me not to take any responsibility for my life. If I could say nothing matters and everything is futile and there's either no God and the whole world is a mistake and even if there is a God, he just does what he wants. So that means I do what I want. It means I have no power. It means I'm an eternal victim. And I think it comes from a lot of deep pain and deep trauma and deep fear. So I think you should look into yourself because we all have it at moments. I shouldn't say we all, but I know what you're talking about. I have had these experiences. I still do sometimes. And I think many of us do. But when we look deep down, it's like cynicism. It comes from very deep fear. Especially if you have been backstabbed or frontstabbed in life. I just don't want to go back into relationships. I don't want to be present. It's much easier not to be present if I could space out of life. So some of us space out mentally and some of us space out philosophically. If I could become a nihilist, it allows me to space out of life and to say everything is valueless and insignificant and meaningless and stupid and foolish. And that way, what's next? Whatever. Do whatever you want. You know, let's go have milkshake. That's what I really feel. Obviously, I don't have to tell you that the Jewish response is very different because Judaism says, look around the world. There's nothing around you that is not filled with purpose. Look at every worm. Look at every leaf. Look at every squirrel. Look at every beating heart. Look at every droplet of water. Look at every grain of sand. Look at every gazelle or deer. Look at inanimate matter, organic matter, vegetation, produce, reptile, fish, bird, mammal, human. Look at any star, any galaxy. Study a cell and an atom. And the common denominator in everything is that it's filled with precision. And purposefulness. 
So to deny that and to say that nothing is purposeful, anywhere you look at our planet, the tiniest, tiniest creature or the largest black hole screams purpose. Now, some say it was all random. The black, the the, the Big Bang and 15.3 billion years later, we have Mazel, we're here. Fine. We know the argument. But it happens to have emerged as very purposeful. It's all leading towards the production and maintenance of life. And human life, life on the planet, human life and animal life and other lives. I mean, just the cycles of summer and winter and spring and autumn, solar orbits and the lunar orbits, just all of the cycles that are perfectly in place to allow for life. So you might say it's all random, but to say that there's no purposefulness in the world, all of the reality screams that there's purpose, there's precision. It's leading to something. There's an end result. Now you might say that end result is ridiculous because life doesn't mean anything. Fine. But it's certainly very complex and very intricate and very meaningful. Now you say, well, who says it's meaningful? Well, it's so many billions and trillions and zillions and sectillion things coming together to create something. You may not call it purposeful, but it's something very impressive and intricate that requires a lot of, and not a lot of, infinite, intricate design and purpose. So I think that nihilism really is a protest against reality. And it's it's an easy way out of pain and fear. I'm not judging people, but it's an easy way out. A much more authentic and deeper way, which I think will also bring you a deeper sense of fulfillment long-term is to stop saying nothing matters and to start realizing that you matter and that you can make a difference and that you can create an amazing life for yourself. Okay. Um, uh, there's more questions. If you look at the comments on the yeshiva.net, I see more questions. But I think we'll, uh, we'll take a break here. We've been on for a long time today. And I know it's been a very, uh, very intense week for all of us. So uh, I do thank you all for your feedback and for your questions. It's been very, very meaningful. I wish you all an amazing, beautiful, inspiring, uplifting day of Gula. May we all have the resilience and strength to stay together, to be uplifted, to be here for each other, and to turn to God and say, we're ready. We're waiting. Thank you. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.